Doctor! Oh yes, you played your cards right, as we're back for another edition of Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that's totally dedicated to the worlds of the eighth incarnation of the Time Lord. Each week we take a look at something from the Doctor Who multiverse that features Paul McGann's Doctor. My name's Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith, and we're carrying on with our ongoing quest to talk all things McGann, whether it's his fleeting appearances on our screens, or his many adventures in books, novellas, full cast audio, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else. Try saying that in one breath. For our seventh episode, we are heading into the domain of the Companion Chronicles. If you don't know what those are, then today's guest will enlighten you very shortly. We're chatting today about Solitaire, the first Eighth Doctor Companion Chronicle from Big Finish, which starred India Fisher as Charlie Pollard and David Bailey as the Celestial Toymaker. Not the David Bailey, the photographer, David Bailey, the actor who recently passed away. It was originally released in June 2010 and slots in neatly, for those of you who are worried about continuity, just after the monthly range story, Embrace the Darkness. So, Becca, tell us more about Solitaire. Okay, so we've got Charlie Pollard and she arrives in this toy shop, but she doesn't know where she is or who she is, which is quite ironic. The mysterious owner wants to play games. It's almost a bit like, it's a bit like Jigsaw, but not, it's, yeah. So he's the celestial toy maker and he's already defeated the doctor, whose essence is hidden inside a ventriloquist doll. And it's all very creepy and very neat, <laughs> but the doctor's gone, the TARDIS is lost, and the games are only just beginning. Do do do. So would I be right in saying this was your first companion chronicle that you'd heard? It was, yes. I think. Was it? <laughs> yeah. I think it's a great range. I mean, as as we'll hear shortly from our guest, it takes a companion and places them front and centre in the story rather than having a focus on the Doctor. And here we've got one that slots into the run of adventures from 2002, somewhere in the second series of the Eighth Doctor's audio adventures with Charlie. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles. Solitaire. Good afternoon. I... Would you like to buy something? This is a toy shop. A doll, perhaps. They're so lifelike. Aren't they? Oh, this one's got a drawstring. Sorry I'm not going to stay, but I think I've run out of patience for games. You'll forgive me if I leave early. But of course. Thank you, and good night. Good afternoon. No! The Doctor always prized the ingenuity of his travelling companions. And then you killed him. Yes, I did, didn't I? Shouldn't I be more upset? I know that you've listened to this run of adventures, the original run, 
of that second Charlie and the Doctor arc. And how did you find it? Did you find it was quite seamless in the way it slots in? Yeah, I liked it. I was a bit confused at first because it was just, um, where's the Doctor? What's going on? Uh, but no, I did like it. I did enjoy it. I thought it, it worked well. With the Toymaker, you've got a very intriguing character. We don't ever learn too much about him because he had one TV appearance in 1966 and he was going to come back again in 1985, but the show was put in hiatus for a while and we never got to have the Toymaker back. But here we've got David Bailey playing him with a bit of a sinister charm. I mean, there's, this story's got some really good moments for me when you've got Charlie voicing the dummy in the Charlie, Charlie, no! Yes, yes, that is so sweet. And it's just, oh, that's so cool. I really like it. <laughs> yeah, I find ventriloquists' dummies really, really creepy. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not a fan. I think it's I think it's a really smart script. John Dorney, who wrote it, very, very clever, considering this was his first released Big Finish strip, and obviously he's gone on to do a hell of a lot since then, including full cast audios for Paul McGann's Doctor. How did you find the Toymaker as a character? Did he intrigue you? He did, but at the same time, he annoyed me. <laughs> Which sounds ridiculous. I just... He reminded me of that person, you know, when you're a child and you're playing at school yeah. and you've got that person who's all like, oh, it's my game. I know the rules. And then they don't. Mm-hmm. And you just want to hit them. <laughs> yes. I know exactly yes. what you mean. I was a violent child, clearly. <laughs> Did you lose well at board games? Oh, yeah. No, I'm fine with board games. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's better than me then, because there have been occasions in my house when Two of the three people playing have played Monopoly and the board has gone flying uh, (laughs) due to two people being more competitive than others. My daughter and I are very competitive, so So Monopoly is now banned in this house. Even Doctor Who Monopoly, I don't know if Celestial Toymaker's on it though, but I should check that out. I've never played Monopoly. Yeah, there's two. I've got two versions. Yeah, I've never played. It's ridiculous. What? Bloody hell, right. If anybody out there is near Southampton and wants to play Monopoly with Becca and introduce her to the game, please do let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Pieces of Eighth Pod. Anyway, <laughs> the other thing I really like about this is the sound design in the story and the music is very oppressive. And the fact you've got that voice going, play, 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 yes. constantly is really creepy. Really, really quite scary. Yes, it's ooh, makes you all tense up and go, but I, I think it's an absolute winner. It's one that I hadn't listened to this one in ages ahead of doing this episode. So yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I definitely will not be leaving it so long until I next give it a wee spin again. Yes, I will definitely have to re-listen. Excellent. So without further ado, why don't we speak to John Dorney, who's the writer of the script, and find out more about playing Solitaire. So hello, I'm John Dorney and I wrote Solitaire for the Companion Chronicles. We always ask our guests the same couple of questions to start with. What do you remember about Paul McGann being announced as the Doctor? Oh, goodness. Um, I remember it all seeming terribly, terribly quick. That's the main thing I remember about um, about that period. I was, I was at drama school at the time. It was, yeah, 96, wasn't it? And it just felt like it suddenly went from, oh, this is, you know, that sort of pipe dream of it being a thing for months 
and months in advance that then uh, it, suddenly out of nowhere it was actually genuinely happening and going oh okay that's a bit bit of a surprise and then it went from you know all of the speculation speculation immediately went to and it's Paul McGann quite quickly there was the, the, I, I can't remember it, it felt for me like it was like a, it went from the instant of this is probably going to happen to it's Paul McGann in a split second and then he was on the cover of the you know Doctor Who magazine and various other things in his shorn hair yeah I, th th that's my main memory of it I wasn't as I recall massively familiar with his work a lot of the things that you probably expect me to have seen I hadn't seen at that point I hadn't seen with them I, I don't think but I was aware he was a you know a good and respected actor so I was I was excited to see I mean that's always the thing I kind of like with them casting the, the doctor I always wanted to be someone where I kind of go, oh, okay, okay, I'll be intrigued to see what they do, really, rather than knowing instantly. It's, it's anytime there are these lists of people speculating on who would make a good doctor, they always seem to me completely wrong. It's always just a list of people who are quite, either people who are quite known at the moment or people who've played something that feels a bit similar. And you go, well, they'd just do that performance again, wouldn't they? Uh, so I kind of want someone where I, where I can't quite predict what they're going to do with it. That's always strikes me. That, that's the one that strikes me as interesting. And Paul McGann is very much in that, on, on that level and in that ilk really. You know, he's a fab actor and um, so yeah, I was, I was excited from what I remember. Where did you first see the TV movie? Were you one of the people who queued up at HMV at midnight just before the world was turned inside out or did you wait for the TV? No, I waited for the TV. I came from a family who weren't, you know, weren't poor but weren't massively well off. So I was kind of, we were always kind of very keen on the value of money. So there's the chances of me like, going out to buy it to, so I could watch it a few hours earlier rather than actually just watching it on the telly. It was very, very small. Um, and yeah, as I say, pretty much I was, I was, I was very busy at the time doing the, um, doing drama school. I seem to remember as well that, that, you know, all of my mates went out to the pub that night. I've got a faint memory of like, of like leaving the pub for a couple of hours and then just coming back because, uh, you know, I, I was only going, well, I've, I've got to go and watch it live, haven't I? got to go home and uh, so nipped off and came back whilst everyone was you know in the middle of having an otherwise you know, otherwise scheduled evening that's the good thing about an hour and a half one you can kind of do that yeah so that's where i first saw it yeah, yeah. for those who don't know what is a companion chronicle um in general terms the companion chronicles turned up as a means of telling stories featuring the original actors from the tv show but where we didn't have doctors available to us at big finish uh, so at the time, that was basically the first four doctors. So stories about the companions, for the Hartnell, uh, Troughton, Pertwee, and Baker, Baker one, and yeah. So, so but, but then it kind of you know began to expand to tell other stories. Um, so you could have stories told by you know um, King Peladon, for example, about, about the third Doctor and Jago and Lightfoot um, telling their story um, in the Mahogany Murderers. Uh, not the mahogany murders. Everyone always gets that wrong, and and they're largely sort of narrated stories. Sort of, often there's a framing device of why the companion is. There's sometimes it's told first person, sometimes it isn't. Yeah, and and it's basically them narrating an adventure they had with the doctor, uh, usually. And sometimes, as I say, there's a framing device set in the modern day in their present. Sometimes it's just not explained who they're talking to. It's just all a bit talking heads. Uh, and usually there's another actor as well, which was always quite sort of fun and interesting. I would always, when I was writing, I would always try and find a way of justifying the second actor 
they're trying to figure well why has this person got a voice and the other ones don't which always struck me as an intriguing question to be um playing with really that's a slightly overcomplicated way of describing what a companion chronicle is slash was so how did the whole commission for it come about from what i remember i just got kind of a I got sort of quiet email out of the blue, really. And, you know, I've no idea why David thought me for it. I'd, I'd written one by this point. Technically, Solitaire, Solitaire is the first one of mine that came out, but it wasn't the first one I wrote. The first one I wrote was the one that became, that, that's called Echoes of Grey, uh, written as Shades of Grey, but then for various reasons, I wasn't allowed to call it that. From what I remember, I, I think pretty much there's one line in that, that in, in Echoes of Grey, that... Uh, largely ensured I was I would be asked back, and it was this the, the line I am Zoe Harris. I remember everything, and I remember nothing, uh, which everyone really liked as a line. And then you know I went to the studio, had a good time with with the actors and race. And then I, I, a short while after that, I, David emailed me uh, asking me to write a story featuring uh, the celestial toy maker and Charlie. I suspect at least part of the uh, thinking of that was because he knew I'd largely come sort of from the theatre background, not that I'd written many actual theatre plays, but um, he was very much thinking about it being this idea of Charlie and the toy maker and it being pretty much entirely written as dialogue rather than narration and possibly having the, the, the doctor involved as a ventriloquist dummy. And because as I say, that's quite, uh, you know, the long conversations, you know, two-handers are quite a staple of theatre so it's something that feels entirely up my street and every time I every now and then I, I, I go back to writing something like that uh, so you have things like say like most recently it's something like uh, The Long Way Round from Stranded is, is, is very theatrical in terms of almost duologues but yeah that might be why I have no idea why it would have seemed like you know writing a missing adventure of, of Charlie would have seemed more of a natural fit for someone like say like Alan Barnes or someone who's actually written for the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. But it was it was great as an opportunity because obviously um, I, I think by this point uh, we've been getting to the end of or very close to the end of having Charlie as a regular character. So the actual opportunity of writing for this really iconic figure within the Eighth Doctor canon was quite exciting to me. Really, also as well because I I met. India, obviously, because I'd done, I'd done a, an Eighth Doctor adventure as an actor. I'd done, I did Faith Stealer, uh, which I'd had a lovely time doing. And, um, you know, a bunch of us, including me, India and Conrad, had all gone out for a curry afterwards, which was, you know, great fun. And, uh, and so I've got a lot of time for India and indeed Conrad, who, who does a great Zoidberg impression. That's the main thing I remember, just like weeping with laughter at his Zoidberg. That's, so I kind of died in it. And it, it's one of the things where, you know, gen, genuinely, it feels like a really good match of, of writer and 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 topic because I'm a, I'm a massive board game nerd. Genuinely, it's one of my big obsessions other than Doctor Who, and is, is, I, is I adore board games and playing board games, and I think about about this and the psychology of it. So I, I felt I got quite lucky being invited to do it. I mean, it's a very atypical chronicle at this point, as you say, being effectively yeah. a theatrical two-hander played in real time with no narration. Did you enjoy pushing the end? Oh, it, it's technically... It does have narration. Technically, I did. I, I thought, you know what? I'm just. I'm going to do a cheeky little thing because it just just appealed to me. There is a little brief bit where India describes what happened in the TARDIS before they get caught. And in my head, I just love the kind of idea of going, okay, yeah, that is the traditional bit of of the companion narrating the story for like. But it's only like about you know 20 seconds or whatever. He goes, it's just the. It is a regular companion chronicle with the narrated story but unfortunately the narrated story is about 30 seconds and the the framing device is the best part of an hour so yeah that, that's some 
but, but yeah, certainly at the time, there hadn't been any dialogue only two handers in the Chronicles. Obviously, we'd had a two hander in, in Scherzo, Scherzo, however you pronounce it, I can never remember. Uh, in the in the main range with indeed Charlie and and, and Paul uh, in by Rob and but yes yeah, so it was very atypical. I noticed that given how often the Eighth Doctor loses his memory, in this case it's Charlie who has the amnesia. Was that deliberately subverting the norm? Because we all know how many times the Eighth Doctor has lost his memory. I think not deliberately. From my memory, I think it was purely a question of, of logistics. A lot of the, the structure of the plot, you know, once you've come up with this idea of, uh, well, once as I say, the brief had been given was pretty much the, the toy maker and Charlie trapped in a room having a game. That was pretty much the brief and possibly the doctor was eventually with stomach. The moment you've got the doctor there, the, the, the question I would always go, I found myself asking was, well, why doesn't she just ask the doctor to do everything? Why isn't the doctor getting more, you know, if the doctor is actually there as a dummy who can talk to her, why doesn't she say, Doctor, what's wrong? And this is the thing. I didn't want to use the ventriloquist dummy that much because I thought, you know what? That's just that's just doing a three-hander and cheating. If you've only got the two of them, you've got to do it properly. And so that meant I, I couldn't, I didn't want to use the Doctor to a massive degree. So I, I just thought, so she's got to have amnesia because otherwise why that, that gets her out of um, having to just ask the Doctor everything and it being led by the Doctor rather than being led by Charlie which I thought was very important to do. So it was that was one of the, the, the things where, if anything, it felt like it was the, the, the sensible practical solution to to the problem rather than anything else along those lines, really, yeah. So given that this was only your second Big Finish commission, how did you find being given an iconic character like the Toymaker to play with, ironically? Oh, well, I mean, it was an interesting one because, I mean, the, the, the Toymaker... It's kind of weird, isn't it, when you think about it, the fact that it's such a big part uh, in, in fan, but everyone's excited by the prospect of the toy maker. But there's literally one episode that exists, uh, and it's from, from one story that we can't see. And, and and if we're being absolutely honest, it's not an episode anyone particularly likes. You know, the, the, these days it's, it's, it's largely remembered for you have to cover up the word that turns up halfway through. And, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not, it's, it's a, I think people like the idea of the toy rather than the actual story or the, the it's, it's one of those things where you kind of go, oh, that sounds exciting. And then the actual story, you go, oh, it's quite dull. And then obviously we, we've had the further history with, you know, the Nightmare Fair, which I think at least probably partially prompted it because I read the script of that bit, it hadn't come out at that point. So I was, I was going from the, the, the I hadn't heard what David Bailey actually would do, had done with the character, but, but there's another friend. There's obviously various other books. There's divided loyalties and things like that, and around the edges. I, I kind of went with it the way I would sort of do with any other character, really. Ideally, if you're writing a, a, an old character, at least one of the ways of going into it is going. I want to write the definitive story for this this old monster, or old old person, or villain, or character, or whatever. And if I'm being absolutely honest, I think the Toymaker is the one where I kind of managed that. Um, in fact, I think I've done it twice. I think that in Trouble with Drax, both feel like they're the, you know, I think um, if, you, if you want the archetypal, not the archetypal, but, you know, I think that the, it's the definitive Drax story and the definitive Toymaker story, more so than the TV ones, which is perhaps smug to say, but, you know, I don't feel I've done it every other time. It was a lot of fun to go with. And generally speaking, as I say, I think it was kind of absolutely within within my wheelhouse as a character. I mean, I, I felt there were various things I wanted to do. I, I got very aware. I, I think I, I have a vague memory of like reading around things. So I think I read Divided Loyalties at the time just to be aware of what was happening then. 
I think I read, uh, I want to say that the final game, I think is the name of the, the, the Doctor Who magazine comic strip. I really liked the fact, I realised that we'd never had a cliffhanger of the, the toy maker saying game over. And so that was, that I built the story a lot, it was around that. And, and, and but as I say, I just thought about games a lot. I, I A lot of it was inspired, I'd been on a theatre tour of a play called Humble Boy a few months before. And we, we played some games in like Cork and stuff like that. One of the other people that was playing with was uh, Kathy Harvey, who then went on to write her own not uh, entirely toymaker-ish uh, story of Queen of Time for Big Finish Audios. Yeah, and we, I, but I remember distinctly us playing a game of Trivial Pursuit in a hotel in Cork and just finding it fascinating the way people worked and were interested in the games. There was, there was one woman in particular who seemed to view Trivial Pursuit as literally an indication of who the smartest person was in the room, which it clearly isn't. But just, just for, she, she was like, you know, a university professor who kept finding, feeling, seemed to be feeling a little bit threatened by the sense of other people possibly being smarter than her. And was just, got a bit annoyed when any of us was like overly literal on you know the questions and the answers and things like that and i i, I just got to thinking about well why what, what is playing games and, and i was seeing how i like to play games so she was very determined for that and i remember kathy would always like give people hints to the answers to people and i i couldn't stand that because i think no i, I don't want to I, I don't want the i don't want clues i want to know it or i don't know it that's play i want to play the game by the rules and and I've often thought about that being, and as I say, having played lots of board games, you kind of think about these things like, um, I had a bad time playing a game once and someone was saying, well, do you think that's because you, were, you weren't winning? I was going, no, I lose all the time. I play so many board games, I lose all the time. The one thing you know about board gamers is they're very good losers because they lose more often than they win. It was just more the fact that for various reasons the game was a bit badly played that time. But yeah, I, I realised that playing a game for me is always this thing about, I. I I want to in, enjoy the game. And to enjoy the game, I, I need to be playing to win, but I don't want to w win so badly that I don't enjoy playing the game. The process is the fun part. So it's things like that that kind of factored into it. And what people like out games have got me thinking about about life as a game and questions of that. So that's why all of that fed in, as I remember. I think it's a fantastic listen, just having come back. The toy maker just is, you think, how the hell can you beat this guy? But obviously there are ways and means. <laughs> and did you go to the recording for this? Because I noticed that you're not in the CD extras. I did go to the recording. I can't remember why I'm not in the extras. I, I, actually, was it? No, actually, thinking about it, I think I was, I think it was when I was on tour. Uh, not, not on tour. I think it was in, I was in a play. I was in a play in Oxford. Uh, so I think I drove down for a few hours uh, and, and hung out for the middle of the day rather than hearing the entire recording. So I had a, a brief chat with the people and listened to some small sections of it. There's one bit that, if I'm honest, I kind of wish I'd been there for, because there's one moment, I can't, I, I don't want to say what it is, but, but Bailey delivers a line and it says the wrong word and it's ended up in the finished recording. And they go, I, I think that makes no sense. I think that sentence, nobody's ever noticed it or, put, or, or picked it apart, so I'm not going to mention it or draw everyone's attention to it, but there is definitely one line where you go, oh God, he said the wrong word. And if I'd been there, I'd have flagged that. That is the, the, the only bit there, really, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was nice. I mean, you know, I've tended to go to the recordings when, when possible, not not for the last year or so, because we're in lockdown and I don't, and you know, there's no real fun in it if it's just listening to your own words and not being able to nip out into the room and then have a coffee. But yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good day from what I remember. I seem to remember, actually, I, I then drove back to Oxford and arrived at Oxford to get the commission for special features when I got there. 
So that was it. That was a good day by any stretch of the imagination. You must have been impressed by the level of detail that Alex Mallinson went to in creating the dummy. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was there on the day for the cover shot, and I, I, I think he even went. We even tried to get it in the sidebar for the cover, uh, just that, that the, sort of the dummy face. But yeah, God, God, God bless him for that. That's still. I, I'm trying to remember. I think that might have ended up in the big finish office for a while. I'm not sure what whatever ended up happening to it because you know I, I'd love to like pull that off him for growing out. Such a nice. In fact, they did send me through a picture of the sort of the, the cover art done separately, which I then printed up and framed and is in my hallway at home. A few little bits of Doctor Who themed art around my stuff, and a few of them I should probably like, like do a bit more. I've, I've just got through the um, the vinyl set of Dalek Universe, and that's got some lovely big print designs of things that I might end up, you know, framing, and then then you'd have to take them out. I don't know what to do really, but that is beautiful. A lot of the art for this stuff is really gorgeous. I think it's sitting in Emily's desk in Maidenhead, or if she's in the offices. Yeah. <laughs> So what did you think about the finished work in the end? I'm still very proud of it. I, I remember listening to it again, maybe about six years ago. Haven't heard it in a while. And just remember having my, my the thought going through my head of go, wow, this is very good. No idea who wrote it. So it doesn't feel like me anymore in a, in a, in a way. I mean, having said that, maybe, maybe it does. Maybe if I listen to it alongside you know, Ship in a Bottle or, or The Long Way Around or any of the other ones that are very, very talky, I, I hear um, the similarities. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it, it still feels very good. I mean, I, I, there are a lot, there's a lot I like about it. I like the fact that I think, I think it plays fair, which I, I was very, I mean, once I got the set from it, so I love films like, maybe Saw less so, but things like um, Cube or what's Exam is one, I haven't seen that, but I'm aware of it being, that, that, that sort of whole subgenre of films where it's, uh, people kind of get trapped somewhere and and have to figure out the, the way out or the, what the rules of what they're playing are, or that kind of thing. Um, the biggest influence on the scripts I seem to remember was I'd read the, the plot, but not actually seen the movie Fermat's Room, which is a Spanish film about four sort of maths professors who end up trapped in a room that is slowly shrinking around them and they have to figure out how to get out. It's a little bit, it falls apart slightly in the denouement when it kind of reveals what's going on and going, okay, that's a bit unsatisfying. So I was determined to try and make that, the ending satisfying and it ought to make sense and it ought to fit together and hang together. Um, and I also wanted it to play fair so all of the clues were there for the audience right from the get-go. In fact, even the title is technically a clue, really. Because that's actually, if anything, the thing that prompted me into figuring out what the solution was. And then it's quite interesting trying to figure out things like seeding those sort of plot twists because most of them are, most of the clues are planted, but not at a moment when you realise that they would be clues. So you have, you've been given it, but it's before you've got all of the extra information that would help you to unlock it, which, um, yeah, it was quite fun to do, really. I, I seem to remember it was a couple of weeks of like wandering around trying to think of what the solution was. And eventually when I figured out, I go, oh, yeah, that's it. And then so it's just like, which is, you know, a fun bit of the process really but yeah i'm very happy with the finished product you know it just feels like it's it swapped in and everyone has been very you know kind about it over the years. i feel that um in a number of ways it was really it was really good for me if anything that that one came out first because the fact that it hit quite strongly and quite big meant that when echoes of grey came out two months later i seem to remember there was like going the coming out this month is echoes of grey from the acclaimed writer of solitaire john Dorney was going oh oh, oh oh right i'm now a, a promotional thing and then when special features came out and had a game was the sort of you know had that slightly twatty showboating i can be occasionally inclined to do it became that sense of going oh right okay i'm now doing come ones that were kind of a little bit 
attention grabbing and, and that people are quite excited about. And I got to hit at least near that level with everything. I think very quickly I realized I kind of don't want any of these to be ordinary. And, you know, sometimes they are like just pure, the fact that this is not as precise science and it's, you know, there's a weird alchemy between you and the script, but it felt very much like Solitaire in some ways was, was the making of me. Certainly a big finish in terms of doing things there. I, I think even if it just been good and even if, you know, people liked it, I suspect it, it just prompted me into making sure I wanted everything to be special and good and be, you know, you know, to, to be a sort of a worthy piece for people to get excited about. So, which hopefully people still are. Yeah, hopefully I still am as well. It's fun. I, I, I really will have to listen to it again at some point. It's, it's always a very strange listen in a way because you go, oh god, yeah, that's 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 still what it was like, really. Yeah. So. Thank you, John, for your time and for joining us on Pieces of Eight today. Thank you. Yes, many thanks, John. Speak to you soon. So, the cover of this, Kenny. Yes, I don't know if you noticed that we've got a nice, lovely new photo of India Fisher sitting down yes. with an outfit on, looking all Victorian or Edwardian adventurous. Um, in fact, gosh, this would be the 1930s, or given going by her time period anyway. So, gosh, would that make it George the Fifthian or something? I don't know. I don't know George the Fifthian. George the Fifthian period, not George the <laughs> Sixthian. Anyway, doesn't matter. Or maybe it was Edward the Eighthian. No, he didn't. He was dead by then. Anyway, my history's rubbish. Yes, I don't know if you noticed, though, that sitting on Charlie's knee, she has the ventriloquist doll. We can actually see the picture of it. Yes. And we have a, a little mini McGann in puppet form, which is really quite scary. Now, actually, th I mean, that was actually a physical prop that was made by Alex Mallinson, the cover designer, just for this, for the cover. No way. Yeah, and he did a picture with India for it. So it looks all fantastic and real and rather fantastic. And the puppet still exists today. It actually is in the Big Finish office in Maidenhead, where it sits opposite Emily Dufresne, who is one of the staff who keeps Big Finish running in the office in Jason Higgellery's PA. And she has this doll sitting opposite her and um, regularly chats with it. And thankfully, it doesn't talk back. Yes, he's, he still exists. That is terrifying. I do not think that I'd want to be sat opposite that. No, especially at night if its head starts to turn. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shivers. <laughs> right, I've scared you enough. That's let, Let's stop there. So, why don't we talk to the man who made the puppet? Hello there, I'm Alex Mallinson. I made the puppet for the cover of Solitaire and uh, did the, the Photoshop for the cover as well. Do you remember how it came about the commission to create the puppet? That's a great question. It's going back a long way, so I can't remember the exact details. I know that if there was going to be a complex solution, it was probably going to be me to come up with it, because I always liked overcomplicating things. Like the time I tried to build the Scorchies as real puppets as well. I think it was because of Solitaire, I got the, probably got the confidence to do that. That didn't go quite so well. I had to computer generate them all in the end. Yeah, but the, the McGann puppet, I mean, I remember David David Richardson always gets really, really excited about new stuff coming up. And he, so there was immediately a sense of kind of, we're doing this thing, it's going to have a ventriloquist McGann, how are we going to do that? And just like actors who, when they're offered a role, will say, yes, of course I can ride a horse, of course I can parachute. I said, yeah, I can do that. So I sort of set about trying to work out how to do a puppet, how to make a puppet. I knew it wouldn't need to operate as as a ventriloquist puppet, so it, it could just be a still, it was just going to be for the cover. And then, yeah, set about finding how to how to crack on from there and david's yeah david just i think gave me gave me carte blanche to do that 
It looks stunning. I take it there was a bit of research involved in sort of get the costume right and then try and get a, a likeness as well. Yeah, the costume was fun because I, I ended up having to go to a lot of charity shops and, and trying to find, you know, school out. I think it was, I settled on, I knew I'd need to use a bit of school uniform blader for his jacket. That was the closest I could get on the on the budget. And everything else was was kind of just, just cobbled together. But a lot of, you know, I, there are a lot of children out there who've outgrown their school uniforms, whose uniforms were you know, bits of it were cannibalised for McGann. So I'm kind of happy about that. I can't remember where the wig came from. That's, I think that's a party shop wig. I don't think I can, uh, I don't think it was any better than that. And then the whole thing went on a wooden armature. So there was a very, very cobbled together wooden skeleton inside. And then the incredibly top heavy head, which was made from, I think it must've been air drying clay and then painted. So he is just, I mean, even India Fisher remarked, you know, because he sit him on her lap with this, this top heavy thing that just wanted to fall off her at every available opportunity. I'm not thrilled about the likeness, I'll be honest. I don't think, I wish I could have got closer to a McGann likeness. Weirdly, it does look a bit more like me than McGann. So there's some wishful thinking in there. Love it. Because I think it must have been something you're good fun to do when you're, when you're working and something like that is sort of like, this is work. Yes, okay, I might not be being paid a huge amount, but this is good fun to do. Yeah, and it's also a practical thing. And I think anyone who works in in the creative, in any sort of creative field, there's that tension between digital and practical. I know it's the same in special effects. It's, it's the same in so many areas. And I think because it's always more fun if you can get something physical there in the room. And we knew, I think we knew from quite early on that we were going to do a sort of Victorian portrait of of Charlie seated and the celestial toy maker kind of looming and then the the dummy sat on her lap so it was the more of that that could be real the better I still think it looks great I think it's such a, a good idea just to be able to create I think I think it's a great cover as well I think India looks the part and yeah yeah I think it's it's rather fab they were lovely and everyone bought into it and yeah David Bailey was so so cool about it all as well and he's a photographer so he, he used I think we got a really good shot because he lent me his equipment and showed me how to use it and that room at the moat is notoriously hard to get photos in now there's photo studio setups and you get these great great shots but at the time we had these little hot spotlights that just made everybody look like it was kind of midnight or they just stumbled out of a club. It was just, it was really, really difficult getting good photos. But yeah, so David's gear was perfect for it. Yeah. So when you look at it now, are you still quite proud of it? Yeah, of that cover, I'm really, really happy with it. There was a time where we were experimenting with the covers and I know notoriously some early stuff like Exotron went down very badly because it was just a scene from the story. And that was, you know, I, I experimented, it didn't pay off we move on but that was one that i think the portrait idea because it was because there was something kind of storybook like about the whole thing this this formal portrait felt like the way to go so rather than a montage of elements even though it is a montage of elements with a background that i took from the uh, the doll museum uh, near covent garden which felt felt really apt it just came together really beautifully i think so yeah i was really happy with it and again mm. because it was sat there with them posed, you know, with the puppet. All I was ending up doing was dropping them into costume. I didn't have to change their position. I didn't have to find new hands from somewhere. You know, when you sort of have to change someone's head and the neck doesn't sit quite well on the neck. It was none of that. It just, it was their pose. It was their kind of performance in the photograph. It was, yeah, it was fun. 
brilliant. And of course, just before we started recording, I was telling you that the puppet is still in existence in the Big Finish office. That must please you. <laughs> yeah, that's, I genuinely didn't realise. I knew it lasted a fair old while. And I, I feel bad because there's a there's a thing that we needed it for the photo and then I pretty much abandoned it at the moat because the thing is to get it there, I had to take it on the tube. Because, so I, I do remember like, you know, traveling along, I can't remember, it must have been the Hammersmith and City Line, sat next to this McGann puppet with kind of people going to school and, and people going to work. Yeah, it was it was rush hour with the, uh, with the puppet. It was fun. It must take something Very, for, for people in the, the tube to go, what? Given that we're talking about London. Yeah, there was, yeah, you got some stares. It's good because you're not allowed to make eye contact with people on the tube, but you can you can stare at a ventriloquist dummy. That's all right. We'll be back next week for another piece of the eighth when our special guest will be Jonathan Morris to tell us all about writing the fantastic Eighth Doctor and Lucy Adventure, not Top Gear. It's called <laughs> Max Warp. Uh, I am looking forward to that one. We will see you then. Right, we've got a date with Johnny Morris. Becca, set the controls. Setting the controls.